Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Is it possible to peak perform on a plant-based diet? Can you even be at your best mentally and physically without meat? Where do you get your protein from? If you are a passionate plant-based eater like I am, you likely have been asked these questions countless times. And for those of you who do eat animal products, let's get the answer to these questions from two people who are at the top of the game of physical peak performance. My guests, Matt Fraser and Robert Cheek, will prove just how powerful plant-based athletes can be. Matt Fraser is a vegan ultramarathoner, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. He's the founder of the No Meat Athlete Lifestyle and host of the No Meat Athlete Radio podcast. Matt experienced that he was able to run much faster and longer with the help of a plant-based diet and qualified for the Boston Marathon after switching to plant-based nutrition. Matt was named as one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. Robert Cheek switched to a vegan lifestyle when he was only 15 years old for ethical reasons. He's the author of the best-selling books Vegan Bodybuilding and Fitness, Shred It, Plant-Based Muscle, and he's often referred to as the godfather of vegan bodybuilding. Robert is also a two-time natural bodybuilding champion and the founder and president of Vegan Bodybuilding and Fitness. Together, Matt and Robert have written The Plant-Based Athlete, a book about peak performance powered by plants. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Robert, Matt, so wonderful to be with you. Thank you for being my guest today on the Superhumanized podcast. I'm really super, super happy to spend some time talking to you today. Thank you so much, Ariana. Great to be here. And you both have had uh, really eclectic careers. You're trailblazers. You're very visible in the um, vegan space and beyond that as well. And now you just have recently published a new book, The Plant-Based Athlete. And I'd like to know, could you uh, tell us what the inspiration was behind The Plant-Based Athlete? Sure, I can. I'll give it a shot, Robert, then you can pick up filling fill in any holes. So what we, Robert and I had both been in this space for quite a while. For me, it had been, it'd been about a decade when the idea came up and Robert had been at it even longer than that. He's been vegan since 1995. Uh, he'd been at it for quite a bit longer. And we had each written our handful of books about our own approach, our own recipes, our own way of doing the plant-based diet for fitness and our own stories. And so had a dozen other people by this time, which is great. And it's really cool that people have begun to share their stories in this way and, and resonate in the way they have. But 
Robert came to me with this idea in 2018 and I had finished that I was, I thought that I was finished writing books because I had my approach and didn't have more to say about it. And he said, what if we wrote a book together because we've both been at this for so long and we're known as people who were near the start of this movement. Like what if we wrote a book that together that was not our book, but was the book, the one that, that sort of defines the plant-based movement as far as fitness goes and looks at lots and lots of other athletes who aren't us and aren't the author basically, because that's all there had been up until now. And so that's, he said, what if we like got the very best in the world at their different sports and talked and interviewed them and found out what they do and then boiled that down and just wrote the definitive guide to being a plant-based athlete. And two and a half years later, here we are, New York Times bestseller and mission accomplished. I'd say it's super exciting that it has had the impact it has and that it's getting beyond the, the vegan crowd, which is what I think really was the main goal here was to reach a mainstream audience with this. And it really seems like we have. Absolutely. And the wonderful thing is athletes are so much more in the pop cultural or the cultural zeitgeist today than they even were 50 years ago. They are opinion leaders. They are truly change makers. People look up to them and look for solutions of all kinds of questions in life for them. So to have so many really super successful athletes come forth and commit to a plant-based lifestyle for a diversity of reasons, but a lot of them have very similar reasons. It's just very inspiring. And it's a wonderful thing that it's hitting the mainstream. In in the plant-based athlete, you interviewed more than 50 world-class plant-based athletes. And was there anything that they had in common uh, with regards that was really the majority, the most biggest reason why they all switched to plant Based. Yeah, Ariana, thank you. And, and just, you know, quickly to add to what Matt said, one of the things we really wanted to accomplish with this book is exactly what you just asked about. It's to tell these compelling stories, the world's greatest plant-based athletes. There are so many amazing athletes out there th that have been doing this on a plant-based diet, including some since birth that most people have never heard of, but they're some of the best in the world. They're Olympic medalists, they're world champions, they're professional athletes. And we really wanted to tell those stories. And so through these interviews with about 60 or so of the world's leading plant-based athletes, there were absolutely some common themes throughout, including one of them was this quest to improve recovery, to reduce inflammation and re improve recovery and improve as an athlete. And so that is what we found. And it wasn't like we interviewed 100 athletes and only 60 of them fit the narrative that we were trying to box in with this story. It was they all said the same thing, which was even though I've been doing this for a quarter century, it was still a little bit of a surprise that every single person, whether they've been plant-based for a year or two or for 20 years, they all said the same thing, that their recovery got better, their pain and soreness went away or was diminished or reduced. And, they're in, and they improved as an athlete. They increased their endurance. They improved their strength. They got bigger and stronger. They uh, felt better. They had more energy. That's a, a natural byproduct. And also really importantly, they extended their careers. They, we can go on and on about Chris Paul and Venus Williams and uh, Rich Roll and Scott Jurek and, and Christine Vardaros and Fiona Oaks and Rip Esselstyn these amazing athletes, John Joseph, who are doing this late in their careers. And even before that, you look at Carl Lewis, you look at Martina Navratilova, you look at Edwin Moses. I think there was a period where Ed, Edwin Moses, who was predominantly plant-based, vegetarian, nearly vegan, where he didn't lose a race for a decade or something like that as an Olympic medal, Olympic champion, world champion, and this is, and that was true back in the eighties, as it is, as it was in the nineties with Carl Lewis, as it was for bodybuilders back in those days, which we alluded to in the opening of the book, giving some historical context. 
And then to modern day, we have some athletes competing in the Olympics in Tokyo right now, like Sharon Feichman, who represents Canada in women's tennis. And, and Morgan Mitchell is there representing Australia in, in sprinting. And so many former Olympic athletes, Dotsie Bausch, Megan Duhamel, David Verberg, and numerous others, Heather Mitz and Rebecca Sony, and the list goes on. And then they all experience the same thing. One thing I will say that was different, and Matt and I were both really impressed by this and a little bit, I think a little bit surprised by this too, was that we suspected that these athletes are competing at the highest level. They're the best in the world. They must all be eating about the same. They must be consuming about the same types of foods. And we found out that wasn't necessarily the case that an Olympic gold medal winning figure skater eats quite differently than a California state powerlifting record holder. Their body types are different. Their calorie needs are different. Their protein intake needs are different. Their preferences are, are different in a lot of cases. Some use lots of sports supplements. Some don't use any at all because of numerous reasons, fears of failing a drug test for the Olympic games or a personal preference. And some people had eating disorders they had to overcome. Some had to overcome obesity and went on to become endurance champions. And so the one thing that did tie them together was a predominantly whole food plant-based diet, but there were certainly processed foods and supplements and even junk foods into some of these athletes' diets. And what Matt and I really took away from that was that this plant-based diet is so versatile, you can approach it in so many different ways. And you're still going to get the benefits of having 64 times more antioxidants in plants than in animal foods. You're still going to get the benefits of having a diet that does not contain dietary cholesterol, one that has the highest amounts of vitamins and minerals, the micronutrients, one that is abundant in fiber, which 97% of Americans don't get enough of. And those are the common themes. And so uh, a plant-based diet in general is going to help overall with reducing inflammation, improving uh, energy, increasing energy, and uh, and very likely, as we found out, extending the careers of so many athletes. Fantastic. Thank you, Robert. I really like that you mentioned the diversity of the diet of all these different athletes, depending on your body type, on your focus, on what your goals are. And of course, also depending on your, your genetic blueprint and what works best for you, a plant-based diet also will be very varied. And for the listeners who hear, okay, for these top athletes, it's anti-inflammatory, it's less recovery time, it extends their careers. How does this apply to my life? It absolutely does inflammation is one of the biggest causes for chronic diseases, especially low-grade constant inflammation, which a lot of people have going on. And it's a lot of it is based on the dietary choices we make. And even though you may not be extending your pro athlete career, you'd want to extend your health span, the years of your life that you spend not only to get old, but to get old well and be able to move and enjoy your life and be able to play with your grandkids and all these things. So I think these, what you gentlemen are doing, what these athletes are doing and proving is that you can really optimize physically and also for myself, I find also spiritually, mentally with a plant-based diet, your all over well-being and performance is just utterly enhanced. With regards to these athletes, was there a commonality in with regards to what the biggest challenge was for them when they transitioned 
to plant-based for those that didn't start out plant-based? And there- None comes to mind for me. I don't know about you, Robert. I know with a lot of athletes, the the not necessarily pros, but the ones who we talk to all the time in, in our work of, of helping people make this transition. So often it's that people just don't eat enough calories when they make the switch. They might be focused on protein and things like that and thinking about those. But to me, that's not nearly the issue that just getting enough calories is because plants are not calorically dense by nature. Whole plants tend not to have a lot of calories for a given volume, which is actually a great thing if you're looking to lose weight because you can get full on fewer calories than would take to fill you up with animal-based foods, which are more dense in calories. So that's a great thing for the average person looking to lose some weight and be satiated with their food. But for an athlete who is trying to meet certain caloric needs, who, who doesn't want fewer calories, but perhaps wants more or wants to hit a certain number, more likely, it's really easy to just like, if you just remove the meat and dairy from your dinner plate and replace it with some sort of like baked potatoes or like a plant-based substitute meat, like it's really easy to lose 25% of your calories throughout your diet if that pattern propagates throughout your whole diet. And you can feel just as full, but you're eating 25% fewer calories. And no matter how nutrient dense these plants are, which they are, that's a great thing. You can, you could reduce your calories by 25% on accident and still be getting a whole lot of nutrients, which is a great thing, but still overall reduction of calories by that much is going to be problematic for an athlete who's trying to hit that certain number. So a lot of people will try this diet and then they'll come back a month later and say, Oh, I tried it, but didn't have any energy. Just didn't feel like I had it when I went to the gym. And and then you ask them what they were eating. And it turns out they were doing exactly this. They were not eating enough. So that it's a matter of making, making careful food choices, picking the color, the more calorically dense plant foods, certain things like sweet potatoes or beans or nuts and seeds, even more, they, they really pack in the calories because they have a lot of fat. Making those choices rather than just like letting the, the greens and the vegetables expand in your plate is one way to, to handle that. And also you can just eat more frequently. That's another thing. Like because plants aren't calorically dense, you can digest them pretty quickly. And so you can eat a, a lunchtime meal and then be hungry again, ready to eat another large snack or small meal at, at say three o'clock. And to me, if you're an athlete and you're trying to keep your calories up, that's the big key. So that's the big one. And then you hear people, including athletes in our book, who, when they made the switch, if you do it in a kind of overnight fashion, you just go plant-based, it's going to take a while for your body to get used to it. You're going to be eating a lot more fiber. And it's also going to take time for the bacteria in your gut, that microbiome to change over to the entirely different set of bacteria that it would take to digest these different foods. And during that period, it's going to feel uncomfortable and you're going to have the frequent trips to the bathroom or whatever else. And so, yeah, so the athletes experience those challenges when they make that kind of switch, but you can get over that by, if you want, just going at a slower pace, making more of a gradual transition. So those are the big ones, Robert, any others in particular jump out from the athletes in the book? Yeah. One specific one, which I thought was interesting, but also a little bit predictable was the intellectual aspect of prioritizing protein. Once a lot of people switched over to a plant-based diet, they understood or they realized that maybe they were overdoing the protein intake before, that there's so many benefits to complex carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, nitric oxide, fiber, water, uh, whole food state, largely versus processed or isolated foods, which we often reach to for high protein foods. We go for those isolated bars or powders or supplements, or we go to those processed foods and they have all the extra oils in them and all the extra calories. And that was one thing that I discovered talking to numerous athletes was that they realized that, oh, Protein doesn't have to be the center of my focus anymore. In fact, if I focus on complex carbohydrates or even on maybe essential fatty acids and getting more omega-3 essential fatty acids into my diet, these are going to help me perform at an even better level. And now that I know my my body prefers to run on carbohydrate fuel, that's what my my brain wants to run on. That's where the the glycogen is going to be stored in my muscles and provide me energy. 
that was what I really noticed was this intellectual shift of mindset and focus a little bit away from a protein-centered diet and one that is rich in, in oats and rice and lentils and beans and yams and sweet potatoes and potatoes of all types and quinoa and broccoli and blueberries and these foods that can even be classified as superfoods because of their nutritional return on investment. That was something that I noticed and I was really pleased actually to see that. I I think it's high time we have that conversation. I think it's long overdue that yes, <clears throat> excuse me, yes, protein is important. Yes, it does all these great things like helps with hormone functions and maintains muscle mass and helps with repair of muscle tissue and helps with growth and it's it helps with satiety and all these things. But if we just optimize one nutrient and we focus all of our attention on optimizing one thing, uh, what about optimizing carbohydrate intake or optimizing fat intake or optimizing antioxidant intake or sleep or stress or, or mental health or empathy or these other areas of life? It's such a multifaceted thing to have overall health as an athlete. And I think we'd be some of the first to admit that a lot of these sports, including it's the Olympic Games going on right now, they're not inherently healthy for the human body to push it to that level. And so if we can focus a little bit more on nutritional health and a plant-based diet does that so well, that I think we're going to be better off in the long run. And that's where I saw a shift in uh, moving a little bit away from protein and a little bit more on whole food uh, plants, which tend to be high in complex carbohydrates. I agree with you 100%. And what applies, of course, to pro athletes also applies to the regular person, this excessive focus on protein. You have people and they worry when you mention you're vegan and you're doing really well. Like for example, my bio, my biomarkers, I have my blood taken three, four times a year. I have never been better. Of course, it's a matter of choosing consciously what you put in your body and not being a junk food vegan, at least not all the time. Have your junk food day on Sunday if you want to. But to really focus on all the other aspects that you mentioned, and whether it's from macronutrients, whether it's mental empathy, all these other things, which often get neglected, I often find that people are in, especially in our country, if you look at the Western countries, the US or Germany, where I was born, a lot of people are dealing with weight issues, they're overweight, and at the same time, they're um, malnourished, they have nutritional deficiencies. And that's because the focus is not a holistic one to really look at all around your body, your mind, your spirit, what can you do to feed that in a good way with regards to sports? And of course, uh, you Robert, as a bodybuilder, are there specific sports that are more open or more conducive to becoming plant-based? Yeah, there's this great history of plant-based athletes that you can follow this timeline where long distance runners were always the leaders in this, in the early days. And, and when I say early days, I'm only talking a few decades when a plant-based diet just became more popular. It was endurance runners. It was ultra runners. It was cyclists back. Uh, some people might recall organic athlete, a nonprofit organization that came out in 2003. It was primarily cyclists and runners with a couple of bodybuilders. It, and that's only what, not even 20 years ago, but it was endurance runners first who really set the tone. And this, it was well understood that you could be a great plant-based endurance athlete because you're lean, you're lightweight, you're eating this diet that is abundant in energy, full of carbohydrate fuel. It's conducive to long distance running. It made a lot of sense. And I think Matt said this on many podcasts that 
many ultra runners are largely plant-based anyway, because that's the kind of fuel that supports their athletic endeavors. But what was interesting, Ariana, is that you go through the phases and we touched on this in the book too, this historical timeline, it really crept into bodybuilding, which is surprising because it's so different than endurance sports and long distance running primarily. And, but bodybuilding became this sport that a lot of people were becoming plant-based in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And certainly after 2010, it really started to boom. And then it, it really, it got into like mixed martial arts where people were noticing the endurance benefits. They thought, well, if these long distance runners and endurance athletes are benefiting from a plant-based diet, now that mixed martial arts and MMA and UFC were becoming super popular, one of the most popular sports in the whole world, people were gravitating toward this plant-based diet. The same with boxing. Timothy Bradley and some of the most popular and best boxers in the world, including Mike Tyson, adopted a plant-based diet for years or would do it during their training as they prepare, prepared for competition. Maybe they weren't morally or ethically on board with a compassionate vegan lifestyle, but they were doing it for performance reasons. And so for the majority of the year, they were plant-based as they prepared for competition. And now we're seeing it in sports like powerlifting. We're seeing Olympic powerlifters. We're seeing state record holders, national record holders in, in powerlifting, the sport that is known as the, as the strongest people in the world, maybe tied with Olympic lifting and, and strongman competitions. The, this is the category of the strongest people in the world. And that's not what you associated a plant-based diet with decades ago. It was thin body types and it was great endurance. And it was largely people from a variety of different cultures too, very popular to be a plant-based uh, on a plant-based diet in parts of Europe and Africa and Asia and in various parts of North America. And it was just understood. That's, you know, that makes sense. But now we're talking about powerlifting and bodybuilding and boxing and mixed martial arts, like the tough guy sports where there wasn't this masculinity association with a plant-based diet. In fact, it was the complete opposite for a very long time. You'd think it's mostly female athletes, it's endurance athletes. It's not this like the tough guy, but now we're in the N N NBA, NFL, rugby, and there's representation across the board. And Ariana, I don't know that a plant-based diet is more suitable for a long distance runner than it is for a power lifter. We just haven't, we don't have enough information and data and longevity of people doing this diet. But what we're seeing is that it works for all sports and all athletes. And we're just now at a point because of the work that all of us have done and the game changers and forks over knives and all these others, that people are now giving it a shot. They're giving it a chance. And they're saying, wow, my performance actually got better or it didn't slump in any kind of way. It was not diminished. It either maintained itself or got better and I'm going to keep doing this for all these other reasons, maybe environmental reasons or uh, empathetic, compassionate reasons for animals, or simply because I like the way that I feel or how I'm performing. And so I think it's universal. And that's what the plant-based athlete is really trying to display. Look at how many athletes are in the book, how many different types of athletes from track cyclists to powerlifters, to fencers, to runners, to bodybuilders, to swimmers, like triathletes. It's really for everybody. And I think that's what we're really trying to communicate here. Yes, it really is. And also the perception is changing what you mentioned that used to be not regarded as a tough guy thing to do. It wasn't part of the tough guy sports. And now, of course, powerlifters or even strongman, your friend Patrick Baboumian, he also yeah. the movie The Game Changers. And he, of course, went into the plant-based nutrition out of compassion. He's 
truly one of the most compassionate human beings I've ever met. As far as other people who do it for purely for performance reason, I'm Machiavellian. The end justifies the means. If somebody joins the plant-based movement, just quote for performance, I'm totally fine with that because I know, and maybe you can, you also have experienced that once you shift your diet, once you stop intaking animal proteins, something shifts in your psyche as well. And if you look at it bio, from a biochemical perspective, even if animals are raised wonderfully on a pasture, once they go to slaughter and they are slaughtered and die, they will experience something very traumatic and horrific. And all these different adrenaline, noradrenaline that gets pumped into their muscles during the process of getting killed. And that is also what you then ingest. You can't tell me whether it's biologically, or if we want to go a little more metaphysically here, you ingest this, it will affect you. So what I've encountered is a lot of times when people switch to a plant-based diet that after sometimes even after a mere few weeks, they start reporting that they feel more balanced, they feel better, calmer. It's all connect. And with regards for athletes who are listening to this interview and who want to switch to a plant-based diet, generally speaking, what would be a good way to do that? Switch slowly or immediately? What are some things that someone who is an athlete uh, needs to pay attention to if they want to make that change? Sure. Yeah. Um, and before I answer that, I just have to chime in. I think you're absolutely right with the idea of becoming more psychologically balanced or whatever. And I think also like you, people just become more compassionate. And I've seen no yeah. actual data on this, but it's hard to find an example of someone who's done this for a long period and doesn't just find themselves eventually. There's the health, there's the environment, the animals, and whichever one, whichever way you get in, it seems like soon enough you discover the others. And I think that's a really beautiful, amazing thing about this diet, the way that it works. But to your question, how to transition, there are lots of ways to do it. Of course, there are people who have done it all different ways. Robert, switched overnight. He just decided for ethical reasons one day that he was going to be vegan and then he just made it work. For others, and I think specifically for athletes who are already performing at a certain level and they, they're concerned about losing, while any kind of change to a diet, just an immediate change might bring discomfort and potential setbacks. So I think for most people, the better answer is to do it gradually from a habit change point of view. Uh, gradual change that that preserves our willpower allows us to actually build a habit, build automaticity to to the new behavior before that willpower runs out. That a gradual approach like that is going to tip last longer. Certainly, there are people who who do make it work when they go overnight, um, because the advantage there is that you you actually do experience results pretty quickly. You might you know go plant based overnight, one hundred percent, and the first week's going to be quite a change. But if you can get through that first week, and especially if you can get through the second and third weeks, you'll be starting to see the benefits and feel the benefits like the ones you're talking about that, that are mental, but you also feel just more energetic, lightness, just you feel it, you get it right away. And so if you can get through that early period and you're the type who wants to just go for it, then you should and recognize the hardest part is going to be the beginning. But once those results start to kick in, those will be your fuel to, to give you the, the motivation to keep going. And, and even though your willpower is taxed a little bit, those positive benefits are going to keep you going. But I think for most people and people who maybe try it that way and then find that they fail, which is totally fine. And that's a common thing. Someone goes vegan overnight because they watched a documentary or whatever, and then it doesn't work out. What I would say to that person is then resort to this plan B, which I think is the more proven one where you build a foundation over time. And when I say foundation, I'm talking about not just in terms of your body and, and the, micro, or the, the microbiome, gut bacteria stuff I talked about earlier and the fiber, but also things like socially, just what it means to go out to a restaurant and order, say, a, a vegetarian dish instead of it having to be strictly plant-based or, or the way I did it. And I spent a year, I didn't have a goal to become plant-based. I just, I started for ethical reasons, wanted to not eat 
what I thought were the smartest and most feeling animals. So for a year, I didn't need any four-legged animals. I didn't need any pigs or cows. And to me, that back then solved the problem because I was like, well, that this way I don't have to eat the animals that I, you know, care most deeply about. And I also get to keep having protein in the form of these other animals. Of course, I learned soon enough that like that wasn't satisfying. It felt like I, I could go further and I can, like I said, you become more compassionate. You start thinking deeper about things. And eventually for me, it was like, go all the way. But but it, that only happened in phases. It was stop eating the two-legged animals. And then after a month of that, it was, okay, I can probably stop eating the fish. Uh, and then it was still two years to become vegan. So no one needs to take four years or five years or whatever it was like I did to become vegan. Because like I said, it wasn't my goal to do that from the beginning. I just wanted to take that next step. So if your goal is go plant-based, I would suggest you give yourself a, a month timeline or something like that, where you can ease your way in. And the benefits there, like I said, the research shows that this is probably the most effective way to change. But just for some examples, like to me, when you go to a restaurant, if you have to order, like I did from the part of the menu that doesn't have the beef or the pork on it, you're still left with a sizable portion of the menu, even at a typical chain restaurant. If you try to go to a chain restaurant on your first day of being hundred percent plant-based, you're going to think that this is the hardest thing you've ever done. And you don't know how you're going to do it the rest of your life. So I think you gradually learn to have a more restricted or more refined set of choices. Similarly, with going out to a party, you learn to talk to a friend rather than saying, hey, I can't eat any of the food that you're going to have at this party. Can you please do something special for me? If instead you say, hey, I'm not eating these things anymore, will you have some other alternative thing that's a little bit easier for me to eat without having to say 100% vegan, just because that's a, that's a hard conversation to have if you're not used to having that. So for all these reasons, I just find that if you do it in a gradual fashion, uh, you preserve your willpower. It never feels like I can never have this thing again. Um, and I don't know, it's just, like I said, builds this foundation. And to me, that foundation is what enables it to be a very strong and powerful commitment later on, where once you are fully plant-based, having taken some time to get there, to me, I think you're much more likely to last. And still a year later or two years or 10 years later, look back and say, it took me a little bit longer to get here. Now I still am this way. And I think that's not so much what we see when people you know, get inspired by a documentary and then overnight make the switch. Uh, so again, I would just say, if, if that's you, if you want to go for it overnight, surely do it. Why not? But realize that's just one approach to changing. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that a plant-based diet is too hard or isn't for you. It just means that particular way of changing didn't work this time for you. So if you're still motivated to do it, change your approach and do it in more of a smaller steps fashion than, uh, than trying to do it all in one fell swoop. Excellent, Matt. And I think you really mentioned some key elements here. Number one is be also be kind and compassionate to yourself. Uh, take your time doing it. Not everybody's built to do it overnight. Like Robert did, I more followed your path, Matt. For me, it was a gradual thing. And what you mentioned also about to keep the motivation going, we literally need to work with our brains. When our brains keep experiencing positive things, small successes. We have these the dopamine release. We feel good about ourselves. So we can actually set ourselves up for success by providing ourselves with these con continuous small successes. Hey, I had another plant-based meal. Hey, I cooked something myself from scratch. Hey, I ditched the red meat for now for, for a month or two. And that'll keep you going. They'll keep building that solid foundation. And also what you mentioned in your in the last sentence, you were saying something about not to think that you can't have something ever again. This, I think this is also really important. The Most people are really averse to experiencing failure and feeling like a failure. So I think it's really important also to tell yourself, okay, if you're going, so now you've been plant-based for nine months and you're going to this Christmas party, you're seeing lots of family again you haven't seen in a while. And then you cave in and had, you have your grandma's cheese cake that she's make, been making for you for the last 40 years of your life. 
don't ditch the entire mission. Get over it. It's okay. Just jump back on the plant-based diet the day after and don't chastise yourself. And then I failed. I can't do this. I think that's really important too. Ariana, can I add something here? Because I think you're both really making some powerful points here that I, I just started thinking about this context when Matt was talking about this. Sometimes it takes a little while or if, you don't, if it doesn't happen the first time, it doesn't mean it won't happen. So when was the last time that we succeeded at anything the very first time? When was the last time we had these inflated expectations that it's going to work out perfectly? Did it work out perfectly in your first sport, in your first academic endeavor, your first relationship, in your first anything that you tried, learning the language? Come on. We put so much pressure on this diet has got to be perfect. I've heard these great things about it. It's going to make my skin clear up. It's going to give me energy. My bowel movements are going to be incredible. <laughs> my, my sport recovery is going to be impeccable, but there's lots of different ways to do a plant-based diet and you might not be doing it the right way. You talked about, I did this overnight, but I didn't feel great those first couple of weeks. And I've written about that publicly and openly in, in, in other books and in articles that I wasn't eating very healthy initially. I was a teenager in the mid nineties. I was eating all kinds of junk food that fueled my plant-based diet and my plant-based athlete lifestyle. And I didn't feel very well. In fact, you know what? Had I not had this strong moral and ethical connection to veganism, I would have easily given up and who knows what I'd be doing today. So we don't, what, what I really recognize there from both of you, uh, commenting on this is that don't put these perfectionism expectations on this, that it's going to work out perfectly the first time that doesn't happen in any other area of your life. It just doesn't, not with your work, not with your job, not with your career, not with relationships, not with other diets you've tried, not with sports. You thought you were born to play, but realized that wasn't for you. And there's other sports out there. And I don't think we need to have those expectations for a plant-based diet either. And we also don't want to over-exaggerate the, the feelings or experiences that one might expect. We all have different things. Like I know people very near and dear to me who say, I thought weight was just supposed to fall off me when I adopted a plant-based diet, but I struggled to lose weight. Or I thought my skin was going to clear up and it's just not. Or I thought my digestion would get better, but it's not. This can all be tracked back to the fact that there's so many different ways to do a plant-based diet. And so I think we just need to continue to fine tune it for ourselves to find something that works really well for us. And, and I think that's true actually for any nutrition program. I don't want to use the word diet, but any nutrition program that anyone follows, it's a constant evolution. Why do people change so much? Why are people so easy, easily swayed to try paleo or keto or low carb or high protein or plant-based or whatever. It's because we're in constant search for what's going to work for us. And these are medical doctors. These are best-selling authors. These are world-renowned experts. They're constantly changing their approach because it's hard. It's hard to get our, as Matt said, our gut microbiome right. It's hard to feel well all the time. It's hard to not feel sluggish or lethargic. It's hard to get our calorie intake versus our expenditure in the right ratio that's going to help us achieve our goals, which is why we have this obesity epidemic. And that's one of the reasons. There's many reasons for that. But I, I just wanted to linger on that point for a moment to not have these inflated expectations that you would not have in other areas of your life and to treat it with compassion and with patience and with empathy and understand this three-letter word, why are you doing it? Mm. Why are you doing it? And why will you very likely stick with it? Or why will you 
move on to something else. And that's maybe more telling than anything. Absolutely. Thank you for your really profound perspective, Robert. And I think it often is also correlated, this perfectionism is correlated to the kind of uh, virtual worlds we're living in now. Everything is curated, curated, everything looks like it's been perfect from the beginning. You don't see the struggle, the work, the ups and the downs anymore in these picture perfect posts of somebody who has achieved something and that they've maybe tried multiple many times. And also in our, we like, in our culture, we're taught to repress negative emotions. So anything that's tied to a negative emotion, we don't really want to talk about, but hey, there, there is no light without dark. And in, we, in order to experience success, we also need to know what it means to fail. In order to know what we truly want, we also need to find out what we don't want. And we are who we are because of this beautiful, crazy, chaotic amalgamation of successes and failures that we have. We aren't born perfect. This is a journey and it's what we make out of the journey that counts, not to be put on this planet perfect and continue being perfect. So yes, compassion is really what underwrites all of them. And with, when we look at it from a nutritional perspective, and so many people are confused and there's so many different diets out there, but with a plant-based diet, and let's talk macronutrients and micronutrients, how much and more importantly, what should I be eating during and after my training sessions? Is there a blueprint that you can give to the audience? Yeah, we can give some numbers. I tend to think that's not the most useful way for kind of most athletes who are just, they're not professionals in their sport. Bodybuilding might be an exception where, where the, the specific amount of carbohydrates relative to protein and fat that you eat, that might have a difference in, in how quickly you, you burn fat or build muscle. But I, I tend to think, I, I, this is my approach, it just tends to be a little bit more the 80-20 rule. Get most of the benefits without having to, to overthink it. And if you look at a typical athlete, I'd say almost all plant-based athletes fall somewhere in the range of 60 to 80% of their calories from carbohydrates. So 70 is a pretty good number. So it's like a 70, 15, 15, where 70% of the calories come from carbohydrate, 15% from protein and 15% from fat. And if you are, if you're doing these calculations at home, you need to remember that fat per gram contains nine calories, protein and carbohydrate contain four, but that's just a range. I and mean, you, you can start out there and then see what happens after how you feel after a week of that. And then see what happens if you go down to 55 or 60% carbohydrate, and then bump up your, your fat, maybe even bump up your protein a little bit. Neither of us that often, um, keeps that kind of close track on exactly what we're eating, but it's useful to do for a few days just to get a sense for where you are uh, and to feel what it feels like to eat. Like what is it? If you write down what you eat and it turns out that came out to 70, 15, 15 or so because you made it do that, then you just get a picture of in your head of what does a day like that look like. And then from there, it's not a huge adjustment to, to know what a 60% carbohydrate day looks like. And that's a really useful way of doing things. I think get that clarity, put the effort forth to get it. And then once you have it, start to just use a, a rule of thumb and know roughly where you are. Yeah. That's about the macronutrient ratio. Again, I don't put a lot of stocky athletes who 80, 10, 10 people who are really great endurance athletes. And you see some who, who are eating more like 60% carbohydrate. So I feel like as long as you're just eating mostly whole foods in your diet, to me, it doesn't matter that much for most people's purposes, where you actually end up. And that, that kind of gets to the more important point here, which was the micronutrients you mentioned to me, when you eat a plant-based meal that is based primarily on whole foods, uh, let's say you throw together a bowl with uh, brown rice, some chickpeas, some kale, maybe some red cab, some avocado in there. When you do that, you're just getting this tremendous influx of micronutrition in every single one of those ingredients. They all bring different things. And to me, 
how much each of those, how much they all bring of protein, fat, and carbohydrate is very much secondary to that. The fact that all of them are providing a huge variety of micronutrients to you. So that's how I, I like, if I eat a lot of beans in my diet, I do it because they're like the single most single food that is linked to longevity the most. When you look at the blue zone studies where they study the pockets of the world, pockets of the world where people live the longest, it beans are like the common food that is unique or common to all of them, like a cup of beans a day. And when I'm eating those things, or if I don't eat my beans in a day and I'm remembering I need to get them like at dinner time, protein isn't crossing my mind, even though a lot of people think of beans as a protein food. They're also a carbohydrate food. More importantly than that, they're a fiber food and all the other micronutrients and the things that make beans a longevity food. It's not the protein that they contain that does that. It's all these other things. So I think like I've over the years, and it certainly was not this way when I started, but over the years, I just tend more when I choose foods now, or when I notice that I haven't been getting enough of say a salad recently, that has nothing to do with hitting protein or carbohydrate numbers. It has to do with, I haven't been getting the micronutrients that come from leafy greens recently. So that's, I don't know. I just, my, my focus is so much more on eating the high micronutrient foods and then wherever the protein carbohydrate fat numbers fall, that's where they fall. And to me, that doesn't really matter. That's very much secondary to, did I eat foods that, that are packed with the things that are going to help me uh, perform better and live longer. And to me, that's micronutrients. Great. That's really great input, Matt. And uh, how about you, Robert? What's your perspective? Yeah, very similar to Matt. I just have a, we just have a different way of wording it. So what I look at is the nutritional return on investment from something. So when you focus on macronutrients, percentages and all that, which I've written about it extensively, and I think that is important. I like Matt, I think that's completely secondary to the source. So for example, you can focus on, okay, I got to hit my protein. I got to get protein. But if that comes from, let's say, processed meats, you have to look at the baggage that comes with that. You have to look at this as either a class one or class two A carcinogen. It's it's very likely going to be loaded with cholesterol, saturated fat, all these other things. It, it maybe has potential to do damage to endothelial cells and, and, and create plaque and build up in arteries. It's a you know poor source of overall n- nutrition, it has no fiber, it has all these things. So I think you have to look at a food in its totality and what its utility is. And that brings us back to the source of the calories being so much more important than a percentage of macronutrients. For example, I could, I could reach some great macronutrient numbers eating uh, white refined French bread and bagels and chips and salsa and candy and soda and all of this stuff and reach these great numbers. Look, it's mostly carbohydrates. It's low in protein. It's a decent amount of fat. But that doesn't speak to the nutritional return on investment, like the Andy score, the aggregate nutrient density index, basically how many nutrients per calorie of a given food. And that is what I think we need to look at. So not get so caught up in, okay, did I hit my numbers today? Did I hit my macros today? Because you could hit that with some really poor food choices and people do that every day of their lives. But more important is, okay, let's look at the antioxidant intake, the nitric oxide intake. We'll look at the vitamin mineral content of these particular foods. And what choices can I make to help give me the best nutrition from the calories that I consume? And at the end of the day, the answer is always eat more fruits and vegetables. It's eat more leafy greens, eat more cruciferous vegetables, eat more dark pigment, high antioxidant rich fruits. That is the name of the game. And so when it comes to pre or post workout, let's take yesterday, for example, after this incredibly exhausting 
book launch the past few months that landed us as a number one international bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, 15-hour workdays, high stress. I've been bringing myself back down. I exercised for three and a half hours total yesterday, which was, that included dog walks and other walks in the sun, as well as weight training and, and two different weight training workouts. But I was fueled with cherries and blueberries and blackberries and bananas and rice and kale and potatoes. I wasn't thinking about numbers I was trying to reach or anything like that. I was thinking, man, what are the foods that are, it's, I'm doing outdoor and indoor exercise. What's really hydrating? What is going to give me energy before the workout? I train for an hour and a half straight with weights. What are the types of foods eat before that to give me that complex carbohydrate, slow releasing fuel, which in this case was like a rice and beans, potato kind of thing and, and fruit for the other workouts outside. And then the hydration throughout and afterwards, and, and then some heavy meals uh, for dinner and as a post-workout thing, but it was never focused on numbers. It was just focused on what am I going to get out of this? And how is my body going to respond based on the types of stress that I put it under? And that's how I make my food decisions. And I encourage other people to do the same, basically asking the question, what will this food do for me? Regardless of its macronutrient numbers, is this a good sound decision? And will it help me with my athletic performance and my health? Or will it perhaps hinder both of those? and then make those decisions accordingly. Outstanding. I couldn't agree more. And uh, Robert, before we actually were joined by Matt today, we had a little pre-talk before I pressed record. And we talked also about you travel extensively as a speaker and you mentioned going to Beijing and that also Australia was a really a great place for you and very open. I'd like to ask the both of you, uh, Matt and Robert, how have you seen the plant-based movement evolve over the years? You know, where we're at now. I found it so fascinating, Robert, that you said you're speaking in Beijing. This is a China is a culture that especially the last two decades has been known to have an enormous appetite for animal protein. So that, that's wonderful that you get to go there and, and spread your knowledge, your story, your message. Yeah. What kind of changes have you both perceived over these last years? I think a lot of them are, are fairly obvious and, and perhaps maybe, maybe people don't understand like just how huge these are. The fact that you can go to a lot of within a year from now, pretty much every fast food restaurant and get a plant-based option. That's, that is incredible. That's just something that, that even five years ago, most people would have said never in a million years are going to have that kind of stuff at Burger King or Kentucky fried chicken, I guess, KFC, it's called, it's just, it's just huge. And now is that a great thing? I don't know if that really is, but it's an indicator of, of the, how far this movement has come specifically from the fitness side, which is what we focus on the most, the number of athletes now doing this, every major sport and anyone you want and superstars in them. Uh, are talking about plants in their diet, whether they eat 100% plant-based all the time, whether it's just during the season, like Lionel Messi, who's you know perhaps the greatest soccer player ever. And he and some Argentinian friends of his who are also players are doing the same thing. It's spreading there. Tom Brady, who of course is not 100% vegan by any means, but talks about how many plants he eats. And that is largely what he eats is plants. This is a, this is a, just such a different story from this idea that vegans are weak. Robert, I love this about Robert. He talks about when in 1995, when he went vegan, people were concerned for his health. They said like that, how are you going to actually live like that? Like you're making a, an irresponsible choice. And nowadays people, when you tell someone you're plant-based all the time, they say, that's so cool. I wish I could do that. I can't because I can't give up cheese or whatever, but like, I wish I, I know I should do more of that. And that's such a different story. So it has come so far, the proliferation of plant-based foods in not just whole foods anymore, 
but the regular grocery stores, a large part of the meat section now is dedicated to plant-based meats. And then they've also got the plant-based section where you can find five different varieties of, of plant-based cheese that actually tastes good. And then all the different meats and all the different flavors of all the meats, these are the plant-based meat alternatives. It's just incredible that we have come that far. Now, I think it's interesting that we do have, that it is so convenient now to eat this diet because so much of the value of this diet for me for so many years was the inconvenience of it, that it, it forced you to think before you went out to a restaurant, you had to think about, will there be any plant-based food there for me at this event I'm going to or whatever? And often you'd end up making the food ahead of time, eating at home, and you'd make a nice, good, healthy meal or planning for a road trip. You couldn't just stop at Burger King and get impossible Whoppers. Instead, you had to plan and make sandwiches and do all these things that would largely be healthier food decisions than an impossible Whopper meal would be. So we're getting away from that. And that means that in, in a few years, 10 years, 15 years, when they start studying the long-term effects of a plant-based diet on populations, how are we going to do if lumped in with plant-based diet is all this basically plant-based junk food. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a great thing for the movement or not, but it certainly does make it more enjoyable. And like I said, it's a huge positive indicator of the progress we are making. So yeah, I don't, it's just, you almost can't describe how different it feels now from when I first went vegetarian back in 2009. And I just can't imagine for someone like Robert who did it in 1995, it's just an entirely different I don't know. It's like you're allowed to talk about this thing now and it's not weird anymore. So just, just incredible progress. The amount of research being done on it is huge. The books coming out now are doing it. people like us hitting New York Times bestseller list. I think Game Changers was like the most watched documentary ever. These are huge accomplishments for something that 10 years ago was a very niche and strange thing that, that wasn't getting a lot of mainstream airtime. So yeah, that, that's my perspective. As far as traveling goes, you are definitely seeing it. We go to Europe often, my family, and and you, I can, you can see it changing there. It feels to me like that's five years or so behind the US. But even when I was in Spain, they had a plant-based thing. It wasn't called the Impossible Whopper, but it was some plant-based burger. And it's amazing. Those, the meat culture in kind of a different way than in the US runs very deep in those countries because the history of, of that way of eating is not just 300 years old or 200 years old or whatever you want to say is the modern way of eating, but it's a thousand years old or 2000 years old. It's just different and it's deeper. And they, there are certain foods that they just cannot imagine possibly ever removing from your diet or possibly imagine that they're not healthy. So to see the change happening in Spain and Italy, where this food culture is just, you know, around raising animals and eating them for food is just, it's just so deeply ingrained to see the change even happening there. It's just incredible. So it's, like I said, not, not really anything surprising there, but I think the magnitude of it is, as well as when you think about all that is to come with the, the different things that technology is starting to allow. It's just, we're headed for a, a very different future and in many ways positive. Yeah. And Ariana, you brought up China. It was really interesting to tour there. And I was there specifically for a vegan speaking tour. And one of the things that I found interesting right off the bat was that I was speaking at a an event called China Fit. And actually Patrick Baboumian, you mentioned earlier, he spoke, I think the following year and did, did a demonstration on stage of you know, a power lifting demonstration to inspire thousands of fans and all of that. But China Fit is a mainstream fitness organization. Tens of thousands of people go. It was at the a convention center in Beijing. I stayed in a hotel where the journalists stayed at for the Beijing Olympics. It was near the Olympic Village and all of that. And the, the convention center was something like, four stories tall as far as expo expo hall or expo floor. It was four or five stories tall, major event with tens of thousands of people. But many of the founding members of their board, the board of directors follow a plant-based diet. 
And so here they are with this major fitness event that attracts tens of thousands of people, but the people behind it are promoting a, a plant-based diet. And so they brought people like me and Patrick Baboumian in to give presentations and do interviews and television and give lectures and be on stage and be part of Q&A sessions and, and do magazine interviews and all of that. And then in addition to that, which was a, a really wild experience. I had a translator with me the whole time. I had cameras were always around. It was really this experience I hadn't had anywhere else. But they also took me on a vegan restaurant tour, which took the entire day. So we went from one location to the next all throughout Beijing, this major city with tens of millions of people. And so a plant-based diet is growing in awareness in, in places like mainland China, as it is, as Matt mentioned, in Europe. And of course, there's certain pockets in Europe. You know, Germany is a great example where it's just very popular. And also I want to mention directly tied into our book. I mean, our book has been out for five weeks at the time of this recording. It just came out. And we already have international deals in Germany, in Taiwan, in Italy. And our book is in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Australia. Like it is, this is this wasn't possible uh, many years ago. It just, there was there wouldn't be a demand for it. This book wouldn't be doing what it's doing as far as becoming one of the best-selling books in the world. Like this is time. I mean, even this morning when I woke up, Ariana, the first thing I saw, I woke up, probably bad habit, but I went to Twitter, probably not the best decision. But on Twitter, I, I believe it was, I saw that the brothers who do the Wicked Foods, Derek and his brother, they have this uh, great cookbook and this now this Wicked Foods line. Anyway, it launched in thousands and thousands of stores in the US apparently today or this week. And it, they said it was the one of the biggest new food launches ever. And it's a plant-based thing. So this plant-based revolution is is happening all over the place. I think Sarna, Derek and Chad Sarna, if I'm getting their names, that, that was just today. And, and these are happening all the time. Like Matt mentioned, the, the store shelves are changing. The non-dairy section in a grocery store is, is just about as big as the dairy section. When you're talking about milks and yogurts and cheeses in many stores, at least throughout the United States, you will see those areas of the refrigerator that are about the same size, like the plant-based the plant-based versions are just growing exponentially. And that is basically supply and demand. Like people are saying what uh, most of the world is lactose intolerant. Um, this is strange that we're the only species that continues to breastfeed as adults. And, and furthermore, we breastfeed from another species. No other mammals do that. It's quite bizarre behavior. I'm going to go with a dairy alternative instead. It just seems, I don't know, more compassionate and intelligent and modern way to go. I've been to something like 33 countries now. Now, many of those were when I worked on cruise ships decades ago and just, you know, stopped into the port town and spent a day or two. But I've also done extensive travel throughout many other regions, Indonesia and Thailand and China, Australia, Mexico, all these places throughout Europe as well. And I've never struggled. I've never had a problem eating plant-based because we can dress it up as fancy as we want and request vegan pizza or demand vegan sandwiches and all this. But the, the reality is fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds have always been there. If you focus on mostly whole foods, anywhere in the world, you're going to find markets. You're going to find either grocery stores or corner markets or supermarkets or farmer's markets. You're going to find the most nutrient-dense foods available. And you can get creative and, and want your vegan ice cream and vegan cheeses and all of that. And you can find it almost anywhere in the world now too. But I just don't, I want people to remember that this isn't just this new fad that's been around for a few decades, but plant-based foods have been around as long as we've been around. 
And that's really the foundation of health and wellness too. So if we can just keep that in the back of our minds that in nutrition has always been there and make sure that's our, our focus and then just celebrate those other things as we travel and, and be grateful those options exist. I, I think we're just going to see more and more of it as we progress. And we also have to recognize there's just, there's so much money in it now too. There wasn't money in this thing 30 years ago. You There was like one variety of vegan cheese, but now people are really trying to change the environment and care for the environment and, and limit resources used and save water and save rainforest and save land and spare animals. And there are people who are able to invest money into plant-based products now. And so supply, demand, financial backing, all of those things are word of mouth, popular trends, fads, celebrity influence, books, literature influence, documentaries, films, that all contributes to a more compassionate world if we want it to be. And I think we're voting with our dollars and we're saying we do want this. We really do want this. And that's where we're seeing this cultural shift. Yes. Thank you, Robert. And it's a huge cultural cultural shift. It's a really exciting time we're living in. And also, you know, what Matt mentioned before, who would have thought uh, two years ago that you could walk into a McDonald's and or a Burger King or any of these chain restaurants and get a vegan options. And uh, while the three of us are pretty focused on functioning optimally and fueling our body with the best we could possibly give it, it may not be something that we would choose to eat, but I think it's fantastic that it it becomes so much more accessible to the mainstream and whether people want to stick with these types of foods or go more to whole foods. But the bottom line is plant-based foods are now everywhere. It's not weird to talk about it anymore. And whether it's the foods, the whole foods or the pizzas or the cheeses, or it's simply the information and people are now realizing everything is connected. The things that most of us on the planet care about, which is our health, our family's health, to be in a healthy society, the environment. Most of us care about social justice. Most of us would say, yes, I love animals. And seeing how all of this is tied together by the choices we make every day. And I love what you said, Robert, it's true. We go and vote with our dollars every day for the world we want to live in and the world that we leave behind for those that we love most if we have children. So it's exciting times and people like you, you're certainly trailblazers and moving the needle towards a greener, better and more equitable future where, you know, humanity can thrive. So much gratitude to both of you. There's something I like to pick the brains of every guest that comes on a podcast. And I'd love to hear from you, Robert and Matt, with regards to practices that really have enhanced you mentally, physically, or spiritually. Could you share a practice or two with our audience, please? Sure. I can start. I think this stuff is idiosyncratic and, and what works for me doesn't work for everybody. And I think I just want to give that warning. I think it's easy to like hear that someone does something and say, oh, that must be the secret to doing what they do. And I, I really think it, it so much depends on you. So like the, the bigger picture to me is find one, find something that, that for you is your way of giving yourself the time uh, that says often in the morning, but not always, but the thing that says like, I am worth giving this time to, and my mental well-being is worth finding and, and allowing 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it takes to do this. Because to me, that's like the, that's the beginning of very deep personal change when that's, that's what allows you to experience it and then start creating more and more space for other habits and things like that. The one that comes to mind for me is that there's an exercise called morning pages that it, it was from the artist's way by Julia Cameron. I think it's been popular outside of that for maybe seven, eight years now is when I started hearing about it and doing it. And it's just a simple, like you, you in the morning, very first thing 
get up and write out three handwritten pages, just stream of consciousness, whatever is going through your head, you just write it down. And, and the really neat thing that happens is after about a page and a half, you run out of the things that just whatever's like going through your mind, the things, the stressors, all these things that would have bounced around in your mind for the whole morning or the whole day. Now you've written them out one time and at least, at least then they're out. And it's, it seems to me that kind of creates some space, but in that second page and a half, that's when you're like looking for things and you're almost sweeping out the corners of your brain and finding all these little things that are back there bothering you or just calling for attention. And you write those out. And then day after day, and when you start writing the same things that like you're dissatisfied with day after day, it, it becomes eventually like inconsistent in some way that you would allow yourself to continuously, continually be that dissatisfied with something and not start to, you know, manifest some sort of change, whether that's like a subconscious thing that just happens or whether it's you saying, Hey, I've, this is enough. I need to change this thing. I'm sick of writing every single day that I am sick of it. Um, I don't know. I just think it's a really neat practice. It's not something that I've ever done consistently for more than probably three or four months at a time. But whenever I go through phases where I do that for that long, and then I'm like, wow, I kind of don't need this right now. And then I, I will revisit it six months later or whatever and do it again. So it's just been a really great practice. And in fact, funnily enough, I heard when the when I first heard someone say it, it was Brian Koppelman and he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And this was back in 2014, probably. And he said something like, had never recommended this to someone, never known someone who had started this practice and didn't go on to create, and he even said, a New York Times bestseller or the equivalent of that in their field. He said, if you find this practice and you stick with it, it just works seeming miracles on you know your whatever it is you're passionate about. So I don't know if that's true for everyone. I don't know how, how true that statement is. But it's funny enough, I just thought about it the other day. Wow, like that actually, I became one example of that when our book hit the New York Times bestseller, which is really neat, especially since I didn't find that I needed to do it all the time, but can do it for these three or four month stints. So really cool thing. Check it out. It's Morning Pages. Julia Cameron actually wrote a whole book called, I think, The Miracle of Morning Pages. That's like a short $4 download on Amazon or something like that. So that's worth checking out too. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. I love that. Yeah, Julia Cameron is, is super. She also wrote this book, The Artist's Way, which is really fantastic for creatives. And that's where I first also found the morning pages. Thank you for reminding me. That's a powerful practice. I really need to start integrating that in my day as well. And Robert, how about you? For me, I've had this astute awareness of the fact that we have 1,440 minutes per day to make the, the most of it uh, for a long time. I've just, since I was a teenager, I'm in my forties now. So going back decades, I've just had this awareness of connecting the dots of things that I've wanted to do in my life or ways I've wanted to give to others or serve community or serve a mission or fulfill a, a dream or support something that I care deeply about, like veganism and animal rights. And it, it's something I actually think about. So I think about how my consistent actions are going to support this, these endeavors that, that I claim to care about. And if we claim to care about something, our actions should support that. Otherwise, we're lying to ourselves or we're lying to others. And so a, a few practical things, and these are some of these are really specific. One, I've, I've identified what's most important, like priority as far as health, fitness, wellness, career, whatever, dreams, if you want to call them dreams and goals. And then I work toward those. I, I, I really do. I take actions every day using the 1,440 minutes we have to get closer to achieving those. I've often said, and I've written about and, and shared in presentations and lectures that I've done a lot of things that I have no business. We didn't really talk about it here, but when I became vegan, I weighed 120 pounds. I had no business in the sport of bodybuilding. 
But over the years, I put on 100 pounds, became 220 pounds. I won multiple bodybuilding competitions, filmed a documentary and, and released a documentary about that and sold thousands of copies. I've written five books, four or five books on that particular subject. And I traveled around the world to three, four, five different continents speaking about this lifestyle because I worked at it every day. And a few really helpful things, and this most people don't want to hear this because it's hard and it changes our social dynamic and it changes our life dramatically. But I have to be honest, one of the most powerful things that I ever did, and it was, and there were people who were my mentors insisted that I do it. In fact, they insisted that I, that I you know, in their presence, I, I do this action. And that was deleting all of my social media apps. I found that I was addicted to social media which was not just time consuming, hours of screen time, but I was addicted to comparing myself to others. I was addicted to who I was versus who I am now living in the past, focusing on throwback Thursday and flashback Friday and who I used to be and what I used to look like and, and who I used to know and just constantly comparing. And I'll tell you, something amazing happened. A couple of my mentors, Kai and Matt, I mentioned them in the acknowledgements of our new book. At dinner one time, I was talking about all these goals that I had, but I wasn't achieving them. This was years ago. And they had me delete all of my apps right there on the spot. No Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, nothing that was just monopolizing my time. And what I found was I was one of those people that even while driving at a red light, I would check my phone. I would just check notifications and, and scroll around and browse and, and all of that. And I would do that at, at dinner. I would do it at the grocery store, waiting in line, at the post office. I would do it at home. I would do it in bed. I would do it at any idle moment. I was addicted to these to my phone. And what I found when I stopped this uh, five years ago or so, and some of those platforms, by the way, I stayed away from completely for over a year. I wouldn't even look on someone else's phone if they had something to show me. I just completely removed myself. I wrote three books during that time. I got my highest paid speaking gigs to, to be paid thousands of dollars and all expenses paid trips to speak around the world, including in China and Australia and London. And I was incredibly productive. My workouts were better. I was one of these people who would literally be in the middle of a set on my seventh repetition, but think of something funny and have to drop the weights and post it on Twitter and then wait for responses to see if other people thought that was funny too. And I'm again, I, and then I was more present. I, I would go out to meals with friends and unaware before, because I was on my phone, I would sit there and be present while they were on their phones the entire time just scrolling, posting, taking photos, uploading, commenting, laughing. And I was just sitting there being ignored. And I realized I was doing that to others. My workouts got better. I, le I left my phone in the car or at home and I had this better mind muscle connection. I was focused. I, my relationships got better. I was more present. I, and I freed up so much time. Imagine, I don't know what, what it is for both of you, but when I look at my screen time, it's eight hours a day on my cell phone between all those different apps, um, promoting and constantly just trying to get attention and to try to sell stuff and all of this. And, and I may be going off on a, on a different topic here, but that was really one of the most profound things that I ever did was just close those apps and say, what am I really doing the actions that are supporting these goals that I claim to care about or am I not? And when I got off those apps, I mean, I wrote three books in the course of something like five years, including this one that's a New York Times bestseller. And it was because I stepped away from an addiction that was controlling my life. And 
Obviously, people listen to these podcasts. They listen. It's hard to talk about the subject in a world where many of us are entrepreneurs and and we rely or think that we rely on social media to to help our careers and our businesses. But what I found, and it's going to hurt people's feelings, (laughs) I actually made more money, more contacts, had more success when I wasn't using those tools because I was doing other things with my time, including creating meaningful content. I can't tell you the last time I wrote an article. I can't do it. I'm too addicted to my phone with this book launch and everything. But back then I was writing meaningful articles that got picked up by other platforms and shared and inspired thousands of people. And I wrote books and I gave lectures around the world. And when I get sucked into my phone, I don't have time for that. So that goes back to my 1,440 minutes every day. And what are you really doing with your time? And if you audit that, and compare it to what your real goals are, it can change your world. Awesome. That is really profound and also ties back into the just being aware of yourself and also being gentle to yourself because we do, we can really cause, wreak some havoc and just cause a lot of discomfort and also anxiety in our brains by just being constantly plugged in. I love that. That is sage advice. Both Robert and Matt, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. And again, thank you for everything you two are doing each on your own and collectively now with your new book. Really exciting to speak to you. And I know you both will have much deserved, much continued success. Thank you so much for spending some time on the Superhumanized podcast today. Oh, it was our pleasure. Thank you, Ariana. And, and really same to you. Thank you for the work that you're doing to, to spread this kind of message to so many people. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity today. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 